I kept getting great jobs on shows, and then the shows would get canceled. When the new boss would come in, and there'd be budget cuts. And after like six layoffs in eight years, podcasting was starting up. Friends of mine in audio were like, "Oh, you should look into this podcasting thing." And I was like, "Well, if I have my own podcast, at least no one can cancel it but me." You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm editor in chief Matt Rodbard here with senior editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, Matt is catching up with Dan Pashman, a guy who many fans of food podcasting may know as the host and creator of The Sporkful. But first, Matt, today's a big day for us. Yeah, it sure is. It's our 100th episode. And I'm just going to start by saying 100 is just the start. I love this job and I love talking to all sorts of characters in food and media and chefs and cookbooks. And um, Dan is one of them. I think Dan is somebody I've respected in food for a long time. And um, it's because the, The Sporkful is an effortlessly cool and deeply curious podcast that's run for over 10 years. And we talk in this conversation about his career in podcasting and public radio, including producing Mark Marin's show at Air America. We also talk about what he likes to cook at home and how he and his team at The Sporkful created their own pasta shape. It was amazing. Here's Matt speaking with Dan. Dan Pashman, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Awesome to have you here. I've been a huge fan of The Sporkful for like a decade, I believe. You've been doing it since 2009. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, more than a decade. And wow. uh, it's great to be here. Can't wait to catch up about that. But first, you just came back from Houston and San Francisco. Yep. And I want to know, I love both those cities for food. Amazing. What did you eat when you were in those two cities? So the Houston one, for that one, I basically, I went to um, Jose Relat, uh, who is the taco editor of Ten- Texas Monthly Magazine. Yes. And he just did his once every five years taco issue. And so I just looked up what he lists in <laughs> Houston, and I read the description of each and, like, picked five that looked especially appealing to me. And then based and then I cross-referenced it with a map of where I was going to be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. narrowed down the field. And, um, and so I went to Gerardo's Drive-In for Barbacoa oh, on sick. a Sunday. I went to uh, Ninfa's on Navigation. For fajitas. Yes, those fajitas is where it was invented. Fantastic. Amazing fajitas and infas. I drove out to a place called the Afghan Village. This was for a sporkful podcast taping and yes. to eat. Yeah. Um, killed two birds with one stone, but um, yeah. did a feature on the guy who runs that place and his interesting story there. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I covered a lot of ground. Oh, and uh, the pit room. Uh, yeah. When I went, br- I got brisket and beef ribs with flour tortillas. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, and man. then San Francisco, a lot of soup dumplings. Um, that was the that was the main highlight. Oh my god, you went quiet with San Francisco. Is it not as good as a food city as I remember? I feel like you went quiet. Oh no, it, it, I mean, I feel like the things that I can get really good in San, San Francisco is less different from New York. Yeah, I agree fully. So like, like, so I I went to my uh, there's a Vietnamese place in Oakland that like you can't get that I have not found of the same quality in New York. So yeah. It's called uh, uh, Pho. Fa Asen. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing it correctly. Like yeah. A O space S E N. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um that one was fantastic. <laughs> um Yeah, but then, you know, I also was like a little a little bit burnt out on eating. I did go to Tartine. Okay. I didn't plan to go there, but then I was walking 
the Cl- big one, like the big, big one. No, it wasn't that big. Yeah, I think yeah. it was the original location. It was kind of small. Yeah, yeah right. Original. I wasn't yeah. planning on going, and then I saw on the map that I was close by. Yeah. And I was like, oh, but it's not that good. You know, people just think it's so great because <laughs> oh, it's got a French no, name. It's great, man. And then I went there, and I had like one of the best sticky buns I've ever had in my life. Liz Pruitt, it's it's exquisite. Like Liz Pruitt's baking and Chad's. I mean, I I don't know who owns it anymore. I'm not following that the whole thing. But like her, Liz Pruitt, amazing sticky buns. Like she's incredible. Orange zest. Yeah, Oof. just really smart. Yeah. Um, back to Houston though. I feel nymphas on navigation. I got to experience those fajitas once, and like I felt the queso. I I just think Houston's cuisine and food is so unique. It's like yeah. it's singular, right? Well, it just and like. Really fresh homemade tortillas yes. are just very hard to find in the New York area. Um, and they're not that hard to find in Texas. And and that was really kind of like my number one focus was like just show me, like point me towards the fresh tortillas. And like anything that yep. you're going to put in or on them, I will be happy to eat. It's such a good point about the flour. Have you ever tried Carmelo from Kansas? Yes. And it is very good. Yeah. Yes. It, is very, it was still not the same. They're Definitely like, not. They're a little thin. And corn, the same with corn tortillas, any kind of fresh tortillas, I just, it's a, I want all the fresh tortillas. Yeah, it's a gr- great point about, it's just how hard to find fresh uh, flour tortillas in the East Coast. So, mm-hmm. awesome. Dan, let's go back to when you started the Sporkful. And I guess, you know, 11 years ago or so, what was the main goal with the Sporkful? What, what did you want to do? Uh, I wanted to be able to have a job. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty much the goal. <laughs> I, I graduated from college uh, in 1999, and my goal then was that I wanted to host my own radio show. Um, and so I worked in radio as a producer, mostly like news talk radio, yeah. political radio, worked at NPR. I helped create this progressive talk radio network called Air America Radio, and mm-hmm. those were some great jobs. Yeah. But between um, between media contraction and technology, internet screwing up media, <laughs> traditional media and recessions and all that, um, a, a lot of shows – I kept getting great jobs on shows, and then the shows would get canceled when like, a new boss would come in and there would yeah. be budget cuts. Um and after like six layoffs in eight years, podcasting was starting up. Friends of mine in audio were like, oh, you should look into this podcasting hmm. thing. And I was like, well, if I have my own podcast, at least no one can cancel it but me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can own the, own the rails, so right. to speak. And, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe then maybe the, like then maybe I won't get laid off and I can actually have a job <laughs> doing the thing I want to do. Um, and then the food part of it was just sort of like I was like, well, okay, what, what podcast could I host? Huh. You know, I, I don't I've been doing kind of news and politics, but I don't really think the world needs another guy with opinions on news and politics. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I kind of have an idiosyncratic approach to food. You know, like I'm not I'm not a chef, um, but I really love to eat and to dissect the tiniest details of the eating experience and analyze and obsess over them and form opinions about them. And that's what I and so I launched that. You know, and that was that was it. In the first couple of years, it was a side project. I mean, I was doing other jobs, nights and weekends, and everything. Did you feel the audience was there right away, or did it take a while to figure out that there was an audience who wanted this kind of idiosyncratic style of food journalism? Definitely, like well before every media brand in food had a podcast, like years before. I mean, did, was there an audience there, or did you have to find a, kind of develop the audience? I mean, I did feel early on that I was onto something. I felt like people were responding, and there were the, the reaction. You know, I, we, I, early the show was very different in the early days than it is now. Yeah. And back then, it was very much like I'm just going to spend 20 minutes like uh, obsessing over the ideal service area to volume ratio of ice cubes, depending on the beverage and the weather. Yeah. Um, and the reaction people would would have is, "I never knew I had such strong opinions about that." 
and I loved when people would have that reaction. Yeah. And so the and people were engaging and they were having opinions about yeah. the things I was saying. So I felt like I was onto something and I was connecting with people, but the audience was still very small. I mean, back then, very few people listened to podcasts at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I had a few advantages in that I had worked in media. So first of all, like, I knew how to make a, a good podcast with yeah. real production values from day one yeah. after I had 10 years of experience as a radio producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I had some connections in the world of media who were who, so I was able to like get on some shows and get featured and get little promotional plugs here and there mm-hmm. from friends of mine I had worked with that you know, other people wouldn't have had those advantages. That being said, like I still didn't really know how to host a show. Yeah. The concept was still pretty simple, and there weren't that many listeners out there to be had in the world of podcasting in 20, 2009, 2010. You produce Mark Marin's show, uh, Morning Sedition, and Mark, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you likely listen to his podcast, <laughs> like for real. <laughs> I mean, but take us back because Mark is somebody who definitely enjoys food. He obsesses about food on his show openly. I've got to, I got to interview him maybe like eight years ago on a stage in Austin once, and we talked about Sam's Barbecue on the east side of Texas of Austin for like eight minutes. Coffee is obviously interesting. This isn't about Mark Marin; it's about you. But I want to know, you know, you were producing him right around the time you launched the Sporkful. Did you? guys talk about like this new podcasting thing well he so so mark and i i, I was one of his producers on morning sedition that was like 2004 2005 oh, so before and, sorry. and then and then our sh- that was one of the shows that got canceled mm-hmm. but then he and i both ended up back at air america radio for a second stint um that was around the time but it was kind of obvious to all of us that air america wasn't going to make it it was going to go under um they were on like their sixth owner in five years yeah, uh, but we had all kind of taken the job back there because we were like needed a job at that moment. it was like tw- 2008 2009 when the recession had hit and there were no no one was hiring and they had like one last millionaire had bought air america and was going to invest one last time or like you'll pay us a salary we'll yeah, take yeah. it so um but we were all kind of like what are we going to do in this place folds <laughs> we need a plan uh, so he started the podcast actually recording there and mm-hmm. night and and it, i mean he obviously had a bigger following mm-hmm. and more of a, a better concept so he took off right off the bat um but and i was contemplating what to do and him and his producer brendan were they were like you should start a podcast i mean that was definitely i remember them being <laughs> that like was the, the reason <laughs> i remember them saying to me it's going great for us, <laughs> which is funny now because they had, you know, probably 5% of the audience they have today. Yeah, yeah, but still, yeah. I mean, their attitude was similar to mine, which was like, if we can just get a, a loyal fan base and either sell some ads or get some people to donate some money, we can make a living doing this thing that we think is super fun, and that would be great. Let's not undersell the Sporkful, though, in this current incarnation because you've got a staff, you've got a distribution. Talk about, like, the structure of the show now. Is it a weekly show, and how big is your staff? I get your emails. I love your emails. Like, they're really well written, and they always have, like, something fun to read in them. So it's like a media company almost. Like, oh, more. thanks. Yeah. Um, the, it's three of us full time. Cool. It's It's me, uh, our senior producer, Emma Morgenstern, and producer Andres O'Hara. Um, and uh, right now we have producer Johanna Mayer working with us as well. Andres is on parental leave. And um, and then we have an engineer and an editor who work with us a few hours a week. Uh, so it's three people full time, and we work. The show is produced with Stitcher, who's a, a which oh, is a, okay. a, a podcast cool. company uh, now owned by SiriusXM. And so yeah, I mean I'm very lucky. You know, uh, in, so I, did, I was doing the show by myself, and then in 2014, I mean I was mixing. I was yeah. hosting, booking the guests, yeah. recording, cutting, mixing, posting, writing the blog post, trying to sell the ads, yeah. do the marketing. It got picked up by WNYC, New York Public Radio, in 2014. That was the first big thing, and they invested. They said, we're going to give you a full-time producer and pay you an actual salary. So that was huge. Amazing. Wow. Because that allowed me to just get more creative with the shows, do more storytelling, just 
be more ambitious with the show. Went to Stitcher in 2017, and then eventually things were growing and going well there. They said, let's bring on a second producer, um, which again allowed us to get more ambitious and do sort of long-form storytelling. We start, that was when we were able to do things like I'm trying to think of some of the first really big ambitious. I mean, we started doing sort of more thoughtful coverage of like race and culture and identity mm-hmm. and food. Um, we started, we did this big epic story about a sandwich shop in Aleppo, Syria, and and why was it beloved and what happened mm-hmm. to it and the sort of this like two-year quest to find out the story of this sandwich shop. So we yeah. started doing these more ambitious shows as we got more of a staff and um, and that was sort of what we, we became known for. And I think worked out well also just because like, my background is audio. It's not food. I mean, yes, I've learned a lot about mm-hmm. food over the years, but I still feel like I don't know very much compared to yeah, most people yeah, in food media. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm not going to do a show that's going to be like recipes and cooking tips because right. I don't have a whole lot of those to offer. <laughs> but what I but what I do have to offer is like a passion for food combined with experience in audio that would allow us to do like long form storytelling or in depth interviews that that may set our show apart. And I think that culminated recently, and and there's many examples of long-form journalism that you've done. You've won James Beard Awards for this. But it recently culminated in your impossible task of creating a pasta shape. We'll link to it in the show notes, the uh, the multi-part episode. But Dan, tell us about creating your own pasta shape. What was that? How how did it begin? Yeah. <laughs> where shall we begin? Yeah, where shall begin? We, so so I mean, really, it began like in the mid twenty teens when the podcast boom hit. Yeah, and that, you know, serial. The, you know, yeah. the, the, there was serial. The, I don't know if you remember. Startup was a podcast about Alex Bloomberg starting his own podcast company. So these were these long form multi episode podcast series that had like yeah. cliffhangers. Yeah. And I, I, as far as I knew, that that hadn't been done. It was like it was very exciting in the world of audio that you could tell these big long form <laughs> stories with multiple episodes. And I started thinking to myself, what would my version of that kind of story be? And I took a lot of inspiration from startup when Alex Bloomberg sets out to create his own company. I was like, what if I were to start some kind of business? Mm -hmm. And then it was like, what if I were to make a food? (laughs) And part of it was like, that could be really fun. It could be a great story. But it was also like, you know, all these years I've had all these opinions about food and eating. But as I said, I'm not a chef. And I've never really put any of these opinions into practice. And I I sort of started to wonder, like, do I actually know what I'm talking about? (laughs) You know, or am I just full of shit? Um, and I thought it would be kind of what would be the ultimate way to test that proposition and tell a story. Well, let's go on an epic quest to invent a food. And I oh. settled on pasta because uh, I had a few criteria for what the food should okay, be. Okay, good, good, good. Because you, you probably had multiple foods that you I had. Were I had about. some yeah. options. The, the main criteria were I wanted it to be inexpensive. Yeah. Even if it was going to end up being a little bit of a high end version, I wanted it to be inexpensive because I want you know, and I wanted so I wanted it to be inexpensive, and then I wanted it to be shelf stable so it could be easily shipped, because it was important to me that listeners all over the country, if not all over the world, be able to mm-hmm. buy and participate in the final product. So I didn't want it to be some super high-end thing and bo- it was only going to be in boutique stores mm-hmm. in trendy neighborhoods. You didn't want like olive oil, right? Because olive oil was too expensive, traveled poorly. Yeah, yeah. Like, I wanted something that was like basic. Yeah, yeah. I, like I, th- I thought about candy bars, like a chocolate bar, but I feel like there's an awful lot of chocolate bars yeah. out there. Uh, but like I love ice cream and I could, I certainly have opinions about ice cream, yeah. but like I, I, that's harder to ship. Yeah. Um, plus, there's a lot of ice creams out there. I just felt like pasta was something that hadn't been explored. Mm-hmm. Dry and, pasta. Right. Dry stable pa- dry pasta. Right. Yeah. And I just felt like this is something that's not expensive. You can ship it anywhere. And I truly did feel that even a lot of the pasta shapes that I like always sort of left something to be desired for <laughs> me. And I was like, what if I wonder if I could do something better? 
Dan, I don't want to spoil the the show. It's great. We'll link to it. It's three parts. But really, what did you end up making? Can we buy it? That's what I want to know. Yeah, you, you can buy it. And yes, I think so. The original series was five parts, and then we've done three update episodes since then. Yeah. So it's an ongoing saga. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yes, you can buy it through Sfolini, um, yeah. which are sort of one of the, like the top American artisanal pasta company. It's S F O G L I N I dot com. Yeah. You can order it right off their website. Have it shipped right to your house. And um, it is in the Fresh Market, which has a bunch of locations um, and uh, a lot of like specialty stores as well. But, you know, you'll get the best price if you just have it shipped from their website. Um, so that has been super exciting. And like it basically it, it launched and went viral. There's also a version at Trader Joe's and there's a uh, version made from um, chickpeas that Bonza is making that's at Whole Foods and through Bonza's website. Um, but the original sort of official Cascatelli is from Sfolini. It's called Cascatelli, and so you really did invent a pasta shape. It wasn't just a, a, a quiet, brand-centric uh, pasta. You're sold in Trader Joe's. They're picking up the shape. Yeah, no, this is going to be around for a while. It was added <laughs> to the Wikipedia page of pasta oh, shapes, so, okay. so that made it real to me. <laughs> is there a cosign that you're looking for to, to even take you further? Are you hoping for a cosign from a professional in, in pasta? Is there somebody? I'm sure Italy has clearly somebody who decides this stuff, but... Is there um, anything beyond Wikipedia to give you the cosign? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be exciting if it was in restaurants. Yeah. And, and, and Sfolini is talking to restaurants. A few restaurants have featured it here and there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I didn't know this. You probably knew this, Matt. But, like, um, it has a long cooking time because the shape is very thick. Yeah. 14 so, to 17? Yeah. It's, we, we, now we're saying 13 to 15. Okay, I, okay. I like it at 12 or 13. I okay. Think it's good, but still, that's long by restaurant it standards. It is long, yeah. Um, and so I think that's been a bit of a deterrent for some of the places. They can like, but what I didn't know is that some restaurants will partially cook the pasta during the day and then throw in ice water and then yeah. finish it later. That never occurred to me, but um, so they can do that. Uh, so that would be super cool. Um, you know, I'm still interested in getting it in more stores in America and especially like into Europe. Oh yeah, big market there. Uh, obviously, big pasta fans there in Europe. Maybe Italy. <laughs> Maybe yeah. eventually get over to Italy. We'll see. Um, I love it. It's delicious, and I gotta say, I've I've, I've had the Bonza version and Scolini version and. I love them both. So Thanks, man. check it out. Okay, let's, let's let's actually zoom out a little bit more because I want to hear about podcasting in general. Um, what makes an ideal sporkful episode? I mean, I guess at its core, it has to be driven by at least one really compelling question that I can't predict the answer to beforehand. You know, it, it, if there's a pitch and it's like, oh, we want to bring on this guest to talk about this subject, and if I can be like, I can tell you right now what that guest is going to say then that's not interesting. It's not going to be interesting to listeners. Um, and so that to me is it. Like, And, and it's really just, uh, that's the one, you know, our episodes are very different one to the next. Some are a one-on-one interview with a person in the world of food, or it could be a comedian, or, mm-hmm. or it could be a deep dive into food science or history or culture. It could be like going out into the woods to look to, to forage for pawpaws. <laughs> um, or, you know, or what's another, I mean, we, we did a taco episode in Texas with yeah. Jose Rolat. So there's a million different kinds of episodes we do. And I love that listeners will, you know, open up their feed on Monday and really have no idea what could be love coming. That. Yeah. And that keeps it fun for me. And I think for everyone who works on the show, because we're always doing new things. Um, but I think if there's one universal truth about all of them, it's that there's at least, there's a driving question yeah. that we're all curious about that doesn't have an obvious answer. And I think that when you can hang an episode on a question like that, it's going to be compelling for for us and for listeners. I agree fully. We try to to do that as much as we can at the Taste Podcast. We try to offer um, a conversation that maybe is full of surprises, twists and turns. I think having a plot twist in the middle of a conversation is great. Let's make a plot twist here right now. Like, let's off the off the dome. 
Dan, do you think the food podcast has a future or do you think it's going to die in the vine? I have a theory. We, we've talked about it a little bit off, off mic. I, I mean, I, I think food podcasting has as much of a future as podcasting. Okay. You know, like, okay. <laughs> I, I don't think food podcasting is different. You know, I think that like food and I, like, there's a million, there, there are a lot of great food podcasts and, and there's a lot of different ways to do food and podcasting. Um, and so I, I think it absolutely has a future. I mean, like what does long-term hold, like podcasting, I think is continuing to grow. And, you know, the spoken word as a form of communication and entertainment as a form of media is not going anywhere. Yeah. The delivery systems may change. So it might not be that you use an app on your phone to get it in 10 or 20 years. But the idea that we will someday not want to engage with other people in hmm. this way seems unlikely to me. As, as, uh, as addictive as video and pictures can be, um, and yeah, there's more people on YouTube but the connection that you get when you communicate through the audio medium is deeper on average, I find. And so – and I think that the people who find that connection are going to always come back for it. Mm -hmm. So I don't think audio content, to use a, an industry term, like that's not going anywhere. And as long as that's not going anywhere – food podcasting's future is bright. I agree with you, Foley. I think there's a deep connection with a podcast when you know the host, you're used to their voice, you're used to their cadence, you're used to them taking uh, you know, people out of their comfort zone and grilling them. I, I'm referring to Emily Wilson wrote a great piece for Taste um, about the future of podcasting. And, and you know, overall, the, the kind of the headline is, you know, Food podcasting is growing in terms of the number of podcasts being made. Um, the problem is, is that uh, like Apple doesn't have a food category for charts. You know, there's issues with monetization. Like you're doing great, and you've been doing it for long enough. And you deserve that. But for some of the smaller podcasters out there, monetization has been challenging versus some of the other categories like true crime, which seem to be getting a little bit more money thrown their way. So I guess that's my plot twist. Do you feel like there's going to be money coming into this this sector? I know, listener, this. Is a little bit nerdy, but please bear with us. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, look, I think there are people who are doing well. I mean, Whetstone just launched a bunch of podcasts that seem to be doing really well, and congrats to them, and they do great work. Um, you know, so so I think that look, there's been kind of a, a rush into podcast. The double-edged sword of podcasting is that anyone can do it, and so it's it's, it's such a low barrier to entry. Yeah. I mean, like literally for a few dollars, you can be podcasting with no experience and nobody needs to tell you whether or not it's okay. And to some degree, that's beautiful. And look, I, I wouldn't be podcasting if that weren't the case. So yeah. I'm grateful for that. On the other hand, when something becomes sort of the hot new thing, you got a lot of people jumping into it who kind of aren't taking a lot of care with it, who don't really recognize it as its own craft. Um, and so you get a lot of noise. And I think that's probably true in the true crime genre also. I think it's mm -hmm. true in every genre. Mm -hmm. I, there are a lot of food companies. So as food companies that are going to want to advertise everywhere get more into advertising on podcasting as they have done in recent years and will continue to do, I think that the future of the, po the food podcast is bright. Um, but I think that the best thing that we can do is to continue to make really good ones. Yeah. Um, and those are the things that keep people coming back for more. Absolutely, Dan. I agree with you fully, and, and great shout-out for Whetstone. They're launching a, a number of podcasts under that banner. Um, so that was a little nerdy. Let's let's move on. I want to hear about the uh, Dan Pashman household. What do you cook every day? Like, I feel like you, you're being very modest, like you're not a professional or whatever, but, but you clearly have a deep interest in food, and you clearly cook at home, so what are you making these days? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'm probably like an above average home cook. Good. I I mean, my kid, I have an 11 year old and an eight year old, two daughters, and my wife, yeah. Janie. And so um, there's uh, a fair amount of pasta, pasta with meat hmm. sauce. Uh, that's a classic. Um, there's a lot of chicken, a lot of roast chicken. Uh, in the summer, a lot of grilling. Mm-hmm. I have a corned beef in the fridge right now for uh, St. Patrick's Day that oh. I'll make sometime, sometime soon. Just shall to... we talk about that? So what 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 do you do to corn corn some beef? What are you doing? Well, I bought it pre corned. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, this is like supermarket corned beef. All it was right. probably it was probably corned two years ago. Okay, uh, the expiration date is very far in advance, and it has all the preservatives in it. Okay, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it'll be it'll be there uh, next thing. Uh, right, uh, right. But, Day but I. I I will probably just boil it and I'll throw some cabbage in. Okay. Uh, but I'll probably do the potatoes separate because yeah. I kind of feel like you don't want it all to taste like corned beef. No. So the cabbage is kind of nice with that flavor, but you know I don't want to have three things on my plate that taste like corned beef. So I'll do the potatoes separately to keep them different. Good strategy there. Definitely want to have each element have their own unique you know mouthfeel and, and flavor. I love that. I love that. Word. Do you have like a, a grail? Is there like a dish that you wish that you could make better or even make in general? I would like to make more dal. I've made it a couple times. I just need to. I just need to do it more. Yeah. I know that it's not complicated, and yeah. I know that I can do it. But I also know that there's a million varieties and and options, and it's just something that I um, have to like. I should just like make it three times in the, in a week, and then yeah. I'll start to develop a system of how I like like it. Fair enough. Instant pot style. Yeah. I have an instant pot. It's been sitting in my garage in the box yeah, yeah, yeah. for about three years. I've yeah. never used it. I'm 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 kind of lazy, honestly, <laughs> in the kitchen, and I'm not. That interested in new gadgets. I don't own a mortar and pestle. When the, when the instructions say that I have to grind a spice, I just take the blunt end of my ice cream scoop <laughs> and just like grind the spices that way. Fair, fair. So I, I don't have like I have three pots and three pans, and I'm pretty simple. Um, so I and I gravitate towards like simple dishes. We're all lazy, by the way. We're all lazy when it comes to cooking. I yeah, mean, it's kind of the common thread. I mean, <laughs> so, no, I mean, I don't think you're beating yourself up, but I feel like it's like everyone's lazy. What's one of your lazy day go tos? I mean, I make quesadillas in the microwave. Like, yeah. listen, I'm, I'm like, I make like bad. We just talked about tortillas. Like, I make like bad mission tortillas, like bad industrial cheese, and really good hot sauce. Right, tapatio likely. Uh, so I feel like that is extremely lazy, but I'm very okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very good. It's delicious. But what about cookbooks? Like, do you do you cook from cookbooks? We 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 interview a lot of cookbook authors on the Taste Podcast, so I like love to hear are there any new cookbooks you're working on? Maybe there's a piece you're working on with a cookbook author. I actually am working on my first ever cookbook of my own. Oh my goodness! Uh, which I just started working on, so I, I can't I can't tell you a whole lot because it doesn't exist at all. Yeah. Um, but broadly speaking, the idea will be to build off of my pasta shape and to explore uh, pasta preparations that are lesser known to average American home cooks. Dan, that's really exciting. I'm excited. I'm yeah. a little scared because I've never done anything like this. Yeah. As I keep saying, I'm not a chef. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to make a point of working with some yeah. recipe developer folks who are more talented at that than I am. And I also, I'm like, I don't have the patience for recipe development. Like I need someone to help me with it because I, I I wouldn't be able to like cook the same thing five times and then decide like, does it need a quarter teaspoon of salt or a half a teaspoon of salt? I just, I I need someone to be like, here's how, here's how you make this. And then we can like creatively go back and forth, you know, tweak this, maybe tweak that. That's what I want to do. And I'm, but I'm, but I'm excited about just like, 
I feel like there's a lot of pasta preparations I don't know about. So I'm going to go to Italy and do research. I'm going to be interviewing a lot of people who are doing research, and then I can sort of turn this into the you know Sporkful podcast. Yeah. That will also cover some of the same ground, so I'm excited for that. Cool. So it'll be like an audio companion to the cookbook. I like that, like right. what you're talking about. That's cool. Well, congrats. I mean, that's that's great. We, we won't. We can bleep out all the details. <laughs> like a lot of bleeping will be happening, but I think we can figure out a way to put that in there. Yeah. You know— this is our 100th episode. Oh, um, I didn't bring one of those like, yeah, yeah right. I should have. <laughs> one of those like, yeah, the trumpets. Yeah. Um, we're like, our point of view in the intro, Anna and I chatted about it, but like our point of view is that like 100 means nothing. I mean, you've been doing this for over 10 years. So, but, but um, that said, we're happy about getting to 100. We hope to get to 200 faster. Give us some advice. Like how can we make the next 100 episodes interesting? What's the, what's the sage advice? I mean, I just would say, like, um, never stop trying new things. Yeah. Like, you just don't want to ever feel like your show is too formulaic. And you always want to, like, break formula sometimes. You know, in our 11th year, we did, like, a game show episode. Uh, We've done weird (laughs) episodes about, like, music and food. And, like, just, just... you know, don't like try anything once. <laughs> I totally agree. That yeah. we, we 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 take that advice strongly because it is important to like break format and you know get 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 riffed on some ideas. I love right. that. That being said, I also understand that it's hard. Like you know, we still struggle sometimes with our ideas we have, and um, either it's too ambitious. Everyone's busy. You don't have the time. You have other stuff you're working on yeah. besides this podcast, as do I. So you know, you you know, you can't be too hard on yourself. You got to you know. You know, the hardest thing is just like figuring out what to spend your time on. What's the one idea that's been sitting on the whiteboard for like two years that just been sitting there? Oh my god, I want to do this episode where we. <laughs> Sometimes the first thing I come up with is a title. <laughs> so I have a, yeah. I have this a series called A Tale of Three Cities. I just think it sounds fun, <laughs> and we would pick three cities where they have a food that this city has been known for for a long time that is connected to like a wave of immigrants that came mm. to that place at a specific time for some geopolitical reason. Mm. And then it, it became whatever, a lot of Greek people are here mm. and they mm. sort of invented Cincinnati chili or whatever it is, yeah, or they yeah. picked it up from Coney Island and ended up whatever. You know, and, and there's stories like that all over the place or like the, the Philly roast pork sandwich. I was going to say roast pork or, or cheesesteak. Yeah, one of those in Philly. Yeah. So things like that, you know, and, and, then, and then to look at the newer waves of immigrants that are specific that are in in higher concentrations in the same city and to kind of look at like what is the regional specialty of the future for this place that these that the newer immigrants are bringing with them mm-hmm. and also to kind of get into the geopolitical reasons why you may have not only geopolitical but like policy reasons and just sort of like human reasons why do you have a concentration of somali immigrants in this city Minneapolis, uh, yeah. right in Minneapolis or, 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 or Vietnamese in Houston and other places, mm-hmm. you know, like, and, and so to explore that and to kind of like, cause the, cause I think that over time, these kind of regional specialty dishes that have been around for a long time get kind of lumped in as sort of like Americana. Yeah. They, they, and so, so they get assimilated and they don't, they no longer get thought of as being immigrant food. So I think it's interesting to frame Newer arriving dishes as not as immigrant food or quote unquote mm-hmm. ethnic food, you know, a term we don't like to use, but at, rather as like the Americana dishes of the future. Yeah, like boba. I think of boba right away. I don't know why. I'm like, boba is an example of like a food that clearly is part of Americana, but it's not ethnic, right? It's just, it's part of every city right now. Right. So, yeah. Love, great idea. 
Do I, it. I want to. Get it off that board. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, I know we just spoke about your, your book, or we'll say your bleep, but um, <laughs> we do ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if there was a cookbook project you could work on without the burden of deadline being time or the burden of money being budget, you don't have a budget, what would that be? I mean, really, my dream job is to, like, in the wake of my pasta project, would be to just have companies pay me large sums of money to taste foods that they're trying to invent, and I would just have opinions and be like, no, it needs more this or it needs less that, and then they would, like, just make the changes until I thought it was good. (laughs) So I would just, like, eat and have opinions about what I'm eating, but then my opinions would get turned into practice, Um, and and then I could make that into a cookbook. So it would be like, here's how to make the tortilla chip shape I invented or whatever it is or, you know, like – and uh, and just to like basically just get basically just some anything that would involve eating a, lo- a wide range of different kinds of foods and traveling around to eat them would be very with wonderful. hot takes with hot takes with yeah. hot takes and then real pe- like worker bees going you know go off and do your thing right right I, I, I wouldn't think of them as worker bees I would no. think of them as my cherished colleagues your cherished colleagues of course you, but, um, you would be collaborative <laughs> but you wouldn't have to do much of that work you would right. cherish that's, them that's the point I don't want to like you know I don't, I don't want to have to be the one who's like calling up the manufacturer to be like how come like <laughs> yeah. why haven't you gotten the bronze shipment from the foundry yet to make the dye that we need to create this new product like I don't want that to be my job I just want to be in charge of eating that dye segment in, in, in the Coscatelli saga amazing so like definitely listen to the podcast Dan Pashman thank you for joining the Taste Podcast thanks Matt The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.